I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Very excited about this because Joel Anderson for Slate is doing a podcast series about Rodney King and a lot has changed in America since then and a lot has not changed in America since then. And we're bringing in Howard Bryant and Carl Douglas here to talk about, and they really lived it, uh, Carl in Los Angeles as, uh, you know, a member of a civil rights, uh, a black firm the blackest and strongest firm in the history of the United States, we can say, Carl, right through O.J. Simpson in Los Angeles, through these trials. You have a specific expertise. And Howard Bryant, of course, uh, grew up around this, was not surprised in any way that the video existed, but saw a lot of things change because the video exists. And we all got to see what black people were telling us for a long time, which is this system is broken and it is brutal. But Joel, and thank you, gentlemen, for all, all for being here to talk about this. But Joel, just please tell the audience what it is you're doing, why it is you're doing it, and what is meaningful to you about this project, where they can get it, and why they should get it. All right, awesome. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me on. And so this project is the sixth season of our Slow Burn narrative podcast series, and this is about the 1992 L.A. riots, unrest, insurrection, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, nomenclature you prefer, um, we're using riots because that's what it was known as at the time. But the way that this all started, it actually goes back to the third season of Slow Burn, which I did about the uh, lives and deaths of Biggie and Tupac. And in the second episode, we spent a lot of time covering how law enforcement all around the country, but particularly in LA, and especially in South Central LA, sort of ramped up these offensive policing tactics against black and brown communities. You know, just going in there, the, the Daryl Gates led LAPD, just running amok in black and brown neighborhoods, arresting people, destroying homes, all this sorts of stuff. And it was birthing, you know, this sort of music that we now know is gangster rap. And I was like, man, you know, that's a really interesting time. I was like, I don't have time to talk about that this season, but if I ever did get a chance to talk about it, I would like to expand on that. And so that's how we ended up here, talking about this like really fascinating time, late 80s, early 90s LA with, you know, Daryl Gates, Rodney King, so many other people that it, it's sort of funny to have Carl on because I'm like, man, it, it, in some ways the, OJ trial sort of runs in my mind together. These things kind of blur together for some reason, and I can't really quite explain why, but that's how this season ended up happening. And obviously, you know, it's slow burn. We like to do stories that tell us something about our culture and our history. And we sort of wink at, you know, the the coincidences, you know, or the, the, the present state. Like, it's like we're sort of being coy about, like, finding parallels with our present state. But I think it'd be hard to not acknowledge that 
you know, after our last year's so-called racial reckoning after the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and um, George Floyd, that you're like, oh, man, we're kind of in the same place that we were 30 years ago. And so that's I've tried to make that as short a story as possible. But that's how we ended. Well, up. the biggest the biggest difference and it's what I say about America changing and not changing so much is now everyone can see it. What black people were screaming about, what black people were writing about and telling us was so now we can all see it. Carl lived it. I will get to him in a second because he really has an uncommon expertise in this area about specific time and place that Joel is talking about. But Howard, I wanted to start with you on this front. Broad question, but what do you remember? What are the important takeaways for you that you would want Joel to examine in this series? I'm appreciative of taking these subjects on because when you were talking about these different ideas blending together, part of the reason they do blend together is because they are along the same parallel track. And I obviously Carl did, you know, when he was in the OJ film, that's part of the reason why we put them together is because they do roll together chronologically in a way, but that's only because that was the way one person, Ezra, decided to tell that story. They may not be as connected depending on how you look at it, right? So I was really interested in seeing how how you decided to take this on, considering there's been so much in you know, done previously. To me, being on the East Coast, you know, I had never even been to Los Angeles. I think I went to LA for the first time in 95 or so, right? But when I think about that time period, I was in San Francisco when that went down. And I remember specifically, I was living in, in Haight-Ashbury and the gas stations and the stores were all boarded up. I'm like, you think this is going to travel 400 miles? <laughs> so, I mean, there was a real feeling that something was big happening. And I had already come, I had come from Philadelphia and that was when move went down in 87, I'm sorry, 85. So you have this feeling of what's taking place in black communities. I grew up in Boston, so we already had busing. I go to Philadelphia, you've got move. Now you're on the West Coast and you've got this going down in Los Angeles and you start to look and you see that all of these things may be hundreds or thousands of miles apart from each other, but they do carry a certain through line. It is wrong. It is wrong of us, the people right now talking that we have gone five minutes into this and Carl Douglas has not yet spoken. He has been, I, his legs have been shaking. He wants to get in here. So go ahead. <laughs> I'm just afraid that once you get to start talking that no one else is going to have any time to talk. And that's, that's okay. I'm here to listen for that. No, that's yeah, a right fair, here. that's a fair <laughs> concern, Dan. I get it because <laughs> this is my powerhouse, man. I lived those days. No one can understand the dynamics of that era without understanding the history between the black and brown communities of Los Angeles and the LAPD. Man, I remember in, in 92 waking up and smelling smoke in my house. And I lived in a big ass house on a hill overlooking the city. But that is how that sense touched every one of us in LA. I dare say, fellas, you could walk through Los Angeles today and stop any black person by random and they will tell you themselves or a family member or a friend who was mistreated unfairly by the police. And that is a dynamic that most of your listeners can't comprehend. That's right. And it leads to the distrust and it leads to what resulted in 1995 and the O.J. Simpson verdict. And no one, I always say, can understand that verdict without understanding and appreciating the dynamics 
between the African-American community and the LAPD in that time to figure out how such a verdict was even possible. I'll go one step further on that. I'll say that there is probably not a black person in the United States who can't tell you something about that somewhere. And I, and I think what always hit me about LA is that outside of LA, most people looked at it as paradise. That that was the spot that this where this wasn't happening. This was, you know, I don't want to call it a promised land per se, but it's always sunny out there. And that's where the movie stars are. And it's all the pretty people are there that couldn't be going down there. And that's the dichotomy of Los Angeles, that you could have both the stars and the athletes and then that base dynamic between police and the black and brown community. And it stems, fellas, from a culture that there's a warrior culture that is endemic to law enforcement nationwide. And that law enforcement culture leads to tanks riding mm-hmm. through the streets of Brooklyn, Minnesota, leads to um, warrior cop, war, that, that warrior mentality as opposed to the guardian mentality. And, and I always go on shows trying to urge listeners to understand the distinction. And it is that warrior mentality that led to the woman in, in, in Brooklyn, Minnesota, who pulled out her taser or put out a gun thinking it was her taser. And she is facing a murder charge today because of that culture. And I always tell people what happened was she pulled out a weapon because her, that man that she was focusing on did not look like her son or her brother or her uncle or her father. And that disconnect is what is all too prevalent. And that lack of humanity is at the for, at the fulcrum of the problems between law enforcement and black and brown communities across this country. Joel, what did you learn about the history, all of the history? Because uh, you're, you're younger, and so you're doing a bit of historian's work here, right? You are learning about things. These guys are living them. You're learning them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was just interesting to hear them to say that, and particularly about L.A., because, yeah, I grew up in a time when L.A. was this, like, glamorous, diverse place. You know, Magic Johnson is, you know, one of the, the major stars in this country. And N.W.A. is coming out. Not even really thinking about, like, how somebody like N.W.A. sort of bubbles to the surface, like the, the roots of that. But I'm just thinking, oh, this is like a really glamorous, cool place. And then if you're going back into history, and, and Carl, I'm sure you could correct me or, or, or tell me more about this. Like, up until maybe about the 50s, L.A. was billed as... Iowa on the Pacific, right? Like it was sort of like a white person's paradise. Like it was not, there was, there was a place that people went to escape being around black people. That was always sort of sort of pitched. And the guy that helped to sort of solidify that was Bill Parker, who was like, as much as like LAPD is uh, in the minds of people is sort of like one of the most glamorous, most popular, most well-known police departments in this country, Bill Parker is the reason for that. He did so much branding around that and sold them as like this really professional, um, all-American type of police force. And part of that bargain was that he was going to keep the black and brown people under control, right? And so Carl, I mean, that, was, that was sort of, I, I imagine, Carl, you growing up, that, is that, does that sound about right? That was part of the culture then. And interestingly, at th- in those days, They thought that community-based policing or getting out of your cars was bad. They thought that getting out of the cars and walking the beat would lead to corruption of the police force. And Parker stood firmly against that whole mindset. 
and it and, and it filtered through to Daryl Gates. And only once Daryl Gates was out of there and Willie Williams was first put in and, and Parks followed that, did the culture change moving away from staying in your car? Because L.A., you, know, you can drive an hour in Los Angeles on the freeway and still be within the city limits on the freeway. Right. And so with that car culture was a part of the police department because they thought getting out of the car would lead to corruption. And that set in, into motion that culture of us versus them. In California, you can't force a cop to live in the area where he patrols. So you have cops living in Simi Valley, an hour and a half away, in an idyllic sort of landscape that is far and away from the rough and tumble world of South Los Angeles, where many of them patrol. And I just kind of wanted to touch back on that, because I don't think a lot of people, especially if and I'm 43, so it's not like I'm some young person, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't have that. I didn't live quite that experience, but it's really hard for people to understand how much influence LAPD has had on modern American policing. The SWAT team was founded in LAPD. The term thin blue line, that comes out of LAPD. So many of the procedurals you see, like, I, man, I know that you all will know what Dragnet is, but Dragnet is an old you know, cop show that's based about a, a guy that moves from the South out to the LAPD and becomes part of the LAPD force. Yeah, so like they're they they created so much of the modern police culture. Oh, again, Daryl Gates, he created Dare, right? The anti-drug program. So so much of what has happened at LAPD, you would think, oh, this is just sort of contained to LA, but they exported all of these ideas all across the country. So the way your police departments look right now is in some part because of what LAPD did. Well, and you can't get away from it because of the power of the, of the movies, the power of television, the power of the popular culture. Where do we get that export? Where do we get Adam 12? Where do we get Dragnet? Where do we get SWAT? These are all TV shows, right? And all of this is 20 years before cops. And people like to attribute cops as like the spot where this term cop again, it takes place. It takes place in the 50s and the 60s. And so when you are sold that the police are your friend and your ally, it's very difficult to get away from when you're not the target. And well, so correct me if, if I'm wrong, know. correct me if I'm wrong, Howard, excuse me. I'm sorry. I, I just no, the, one of the things that I wanted to know you guys say, because it's funny to hear your perspective on this. Not funny, actually. But as I recall, I don't think I have this wrong, that Daryl Gates to America was like, hell, yeah, you're going to get control of everything there. You're not militant out of control cop. You're a guy who's going to clean things up. And when you guys say warrior mentality, I'm like, for you. Yeah. Because guardians well, because for people who are scared of you that's make, right. make them warriors to you, but they're protecting from you. And so that well, they're that, warriors to them, too. But they're they're allies, warrior as ally, not warrior as adversary. And so and it and it really is true. The entire the getting out of your car culture, you know, Carl, is an outstanding, outstanding point, because that leads to occupation. If all you see is this vehicle circling your neighborhood without interacting with you. Mm -hmm. That's an occupation. Mm -hmm. And the irony is there are so many other examples of the value of a different way. I saw something on 60 Minutes recently about Austin, Texas, and how they are re reimagining policing. And um, Camden, New Jersey is reimagining yeah. policing. And there have been even pockets in Los Angeles where police were assigned to work in the projects, Jordan Downs, Nixon Gardens, and they got out of their cars, they walked around, they formed basketball leagues, and it was amazing how the crime was reduced 
in those areas because there was trust that was developed between the citizens and those that police them. And that trust led to people being willing to call 911 when something was going on untoward. Yeah, I always feel like when you're looking at, and especially for, you know, for Joel's pod, you know, these relationships are so critical because part of that simmering relationship, it's not just the black community and the police. It's also the black community and the immigrant communities. I remember even in Boston, just the crazy tension between our neighborhood and the Asian store in the bodega around the corner, right? You saw it in Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing, right? You see it, you know, and obviously with real life consequences with Natasha Harland. And so, uh, Latasha Harland. And so when you're starting to look at this, it's not simply the, the act. It's also the lack of justice that comes after that, that I have always maintained that no matter what police have done, no matter what incidences take place, I think people are far more understanding of incidents that in the heat of the battle, in the heat of the moment, stuff happens. What people are not necessarily that forgiving of is when the temperature comes down and then you conclude that she's not going to jail for shooting a teenager in the back of the head, that there's no, that you don't matter. That is the piece where everyone goes crazy because we are absolutely conditioned to let the system handle it and that the system is going to do the reasonable thing. And when that doesn't happen, now you get Joel's pod. That actually hits on the through line and why Carl like sort of connects these two things, because you have to have a series of injustices to get to where people are upset in such a way. Right. And so you're right. Like. The Latasha Harlan's case, which is for people, the listeners that don't know, 15-year-old black girl lives in South Central LA, goes into a Korean-owned convenience store. The woman accuses her of stealing. She wasn't stealing. The girl puts, the, they get into a tussle. The girl turns around to walk out and the Korean store owner shot her in the back of the head. She didn't get any jail time, right? She got five years of probation. That was as much a part of the explosion on April 29th, 1992 as the Rodney King thing. And that's mm-hmm. something that like, I didn't quite know as much until I started doing this research, but that name really rang out in those streets at the time. But so you've got to have all these injustices because if it's like, if the DA decides, oh, I don't want to go ahead and charge the officer, like it's not responsible. Okay, so we do get them charged, then we put them on trial. Well, the judge, the judge lets them off the hook or the jury decides that they're not guilty for all of these like apparent injustices. And so people come to not trust the police, the judges, the juries or whatever. And so that's how you end up. I, now that I connected that through line, I was thinking about like why Carl came to mind. It's like, that's how you end up with an OJ verdict like that. Because like, you know what? These people are full of shit. Like, well, I don't, we don't believe you. Like, we don't believe your version of events. And so it's easy to just say, well, you know what? None of this makes any sense. Let him go. That's right. And what we do believe is that you have no regard for us. I remember specifically being in the San Jose Mercury News newsroom when the OJ verdict went down. And I remember a mentor of mine, one of the people who got me into the business, sitting next to me, looking in white man, looking at this verdict. And he looked me in the eye and he said, this verdict is proof that black people are incapable of administering justice on one of their own. Oh, my God. He said and that? I looked at him oh. and I said, have oh. you ever heard of Emmett Till? 
Right. I mean, I mean, but he was serious. And believe me, I mean, we all remember I, each one of us when we think about flashpoints. Right. There are certain places where you can say, where were you when this happened? Yeah. We can all talk about where were you when that OJ verdict hit? And I remember he was looking at the TV and looking at me and seething. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you get all those little things that like, oh, black people are not capable of governing themselves and not capable of looking at the evidence without looking at like the history of injustices that preceded all that. Um, so yeah, I, I remember watching that too. And I remember my English teacher, well, this is maybe a few months later when actually OJ went on to interview with Ed Gordon. So you were in high school, weren't you? Oh yeah, actually the funny thing was I was in lunch detention when the OJ, <laughs> <laughs> when the OJ trial verdict came in. I was in but, the can uh, when it went down. Well, technically it's called penance hall. I went to Catholic boys high school. So I was in penance hall, you had to sit with your hands on there. Anyway, neither of you here there. Penance hall. Yeah, penance hall. But anyway, my, my English teacher, I remember when OJ goes on, to, uh, goes on to BET for his first interview post-trial and he's like, oh yeah, of course he's gonna go there. And I'm just like, man, are you totally Ignorant of the entire system, like the way the white owned media has like perverted facts or whatever, or not told stories and not been fair to people that have been accused of things before. And it's all part of the same whole, right? That like fundamentally people don't, people don't think that black people deserve justice. A lot has changed over the years, but you know, one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can... A beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Carl is oh, no. restless again. Carl is restless again. He's squirming in yeah, his go chair. Go. He's got Please, things yeah, to okay. say. Well, no, I, I was there with Johnny and OJ during that Earl Gordon interview because it was important for us that he get back into the community. And, and Johnny was always focusing on getting back through those that had given Johnny help in the past. And Earl, uh, Earl Gordon was always very, very friendly to the firm. But... I understand anyone who attributes the cultural dynamics of the time as being a, an, an explanation for the O.J. Simpson verdict. And I take that kind of person because I was there, man. We kicked their ass on the evidence. Okay? <laughs> I understand those who didn't watch the case have this myopic view that was slanted because of primary media. But we kicked their ass on the evidence. And... The jury was not only black. There was a Latin. There was a white woman as well. 
And all of them, those 12 people, were the only ones that had listened to all of the testimony. They heard every evidence, every question, every answer. Uh, that's, why, that's why I'm reluctant, man, to criticize what happened in Wisconsin with the Rittenhouse verdict. Because they, they, I know... They did a poor job of proving their case. Yeah, and I know oh. the, the recriminations of people not there commenting on what happened by looking at snippets or looking at five seconds of Rittenhouse crying and assuming all kinds of things. So I'm kind of sensitive to that because I know people criticize the OJ verdict without being there and understanding the dynamics. And certainly in Wisconsin, there were there were real reasons and problems with the prosecution of that case as there were issues and problems in Los Angeles 25 years earlier. But let's get back to the Rodney King portion of this and how much has changed and hasn't changed. So, Howard, uh, before before I ask Joel like what he wants this to say, what he learned and what he wants it to say, when I say Rodney King to you and what I say, when I ask you, what are the lessons of Rodney King? What are they? Well, the first thing, whenever I hear Rodney King, I just feel sadness for him and for his life and for the journey that that human life took. Also, the fact that his name is associated with something that in a lot of ways had nothing to do with him, right? I, I like the fact that that term has been morphed into the L.A. riots because they used to call them the Rodney King riots. And I was like, they're not his riots, right? You know, and so I, I'm happy that the language has evolved there. Um, but once again, that is one of those flashpoints. We were talking the other day when we did the King Richard podcast. And there's a scene in that film of the family of, of Richard and Orosine watching Rodney King being beaten by the police. And one of the things that uh, the Orosine character says is, well, at least they got it on video this time. And that is one of those moments where you are connected. You talk about past and present. That moment is an American flashpoint that will survive all of our lifetimes. Joel, what did you want people to learn from this and what did you learn from it? Well, I mean, I guess there's sort of an overarching thing is that none of these conversations are new, right? That the things that we're talking about in 2021 look a lot like the ones we were having in 1991 about the role of police in America. You know, what, what does police reform actually look like? And some people think that means putting a lot more cops on the streets and you know, having them get out of their cars and meet with people. And some people think that that's not having any police at all. And, and how accountable are police going to be to the rest of the public? So that was one of the things that I really wanted to investigate. And then, to be honest, and it started off sort of small, I realized when this got started, I was like, I don't know anything about Rodney King. You know what I mean? Like, to me, he was sort of fundamentally a punchline. The most recent episode we did was episode four that just came out last week, was about Rodney King's life post-beating. And... Right. You know, he, we, we, a lot of us know about the can we all get along thing. And my recollection of that as a you know, black teenager at that time was that he was a joke. Like we were laughing at him. Like, what are you talking about? You took an ass whooping and you want people to get along? Like, what are you talking? You know, what are you talking about? But I didn't know what went behind that and, and the reasons for that. And that he was a man that it just sort of I feel like it got overlooked that he was suffering like after yeah. that. Like he was never the he was never the same after that night. Um, Who would be? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like physical damage, like he suffered traumatic brain damage, but he also suffered emotionally and whatever. And it, it kicked off 
his alcohol addiction, which in some ways you could argue was resulted in his early demise. So that was one of the things that I really wanted to, to, to look at. And actually, Carl, the funny thing about this is that you all were supposed to be his attorney. They, they, they reached out to you first, right? Not first, but I had an interview with people on his representatives about making a change at some point prior to the civil trial. And, and we mm -hmm. chose not to go that way, but he did reach out, not first, but certainly during the course of, of, of the case, yes. Chose to go another route because? He was being financed, Dan, at a level then that was significant. And there was reticence from our staff to pick up the finance, the monthly financing that he was enjoying pending the resolution of his case. It was significant in those dollars. And we didn't think that it would justify working it all out financially. Did you make the right decision given the historical consequences of that case? I always think that our firm could have done better. Um, you know, so I, they got a decent verdict, but I think we would have done better were we the lawyers in the case. I am who I am because of choices I've made, good and bad, so I don't regret those choices. But certainly, I think that I would have been a better lawyer and our staff. Well, you're always confident, though. Do you think uh, you yeah. do you think that all the time or do you think that in mm -hmm. this one case, because the roots of it are so deeply personal to you? Basically, this kind of case is the work you've been doing for how many decades? Forty two years. Both. Dan, whenever I lose, I'm the most surprised person in the courtroom. <laughs> I am. What? All my shots go in. Hey. Okay. That, that's that's that's. I I gotta think that way. I sue cops for a living. Mentality. No, I could. I sue cops for a living. In forty-two years, I've never had a cop say, "You know, Mr. Douglas, I did use a bit more force than was probably reasonable," or I did see Officer Jones hit him one or two times more than he should have. So, I have to have that belief in the righteousness of me and my case to be persuasive to an audience of disbelievers. Yeah. Dan, are you asking, asking Carl also, are you comfortable that you made the moral choice not taking it on? I am. I don't look back and regret because I've learned lessons from everything that has happened in my life, both good and bad. So certainly, yes. One thing, Joel, that I was thinking about when I started listening to this, I'm not all the way through it yet, and I, I love what you did in the first two, especially by giving Rodney King, the humanity that he has never been afforded, especially just talking about him just being pleased to have a job that he I mean, that's something as basic as that. It's a big deal for all of us to actually get something that we didn't think we were going to get. My, my question for you is, with everything that's been done in the past on this subject, what was the pathway to find something new? It's almost like when you do something, you want to write a book on Abraham Lincoln. The guy's been dead 150 years, yet there's a new book every single year on Abraham Lincoln. How do you pull something new out of the LA riots? That's a good question. Um, you know, I knew from early on that we were going to have access to some audio, um, which is like, you know, the foundation of this whole enterprise, right? Like I got to <laughs> play something that you've never heard before. And so we had access to some audio that had never really um, aired before. Like a lot of, and, and, and uh, I'm sure Carl knows about the Christopher Commission, for instance. The Christopher Commission was a big uh, commission that was established by the mayor of L.A. at the time, Tom Bradley. First black mayor of L.A. Last black mayor of L.A. First and only black mayor. And he, he, he established a commission not long after the Rodney King beating. So 
they could investigate the causes and of you know what happened and all the different problems at LAPD. And there's just a lot of inter- there's a lot of audio, particularly interviews that Daryl Gates gave during that time. It shows sort of his contentiousness and you know fundamental contempt for oversight. Like he just. He did not believe that anybody should ever be able to tell the LAPD what to do. So that sort of stuff was the things that I, I wanted to do. And also, you know, um, I really wanted to tell the story of Latasha Harless, too. Um, that, <laughs> thank goodness there was a great Oscar-nominated documentary about her life a few uh, last year called A Love Song for Latasha. And I actually saw that a couple years before when it was going through the festival circuit. And I was like, man, I would love to apply some journalism to that and just talk to her family and 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 bring some of that up. So um, that was, those were the, the two things I was like, oh, I think I have something new to offer with this yep. season. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Carl, how much has changed and how much hasn't since Rodney King? You know, Dan, the more things change, the more they remain the same. I remember, man, when he first saw the video of Rodney Keith. Yeah, finally, we got this shit on video now. Now everyone can understand when we say this shit happens all the time. You see it. And then there was the not guilty verdict of the officers. And there was depression, palpable among black folks, even with a freaking video, we even couldn't get today. a conviction. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then fast forward, George Floyd what crystallized in America because of that video. We were all cooped up in our homes for the pandemic, and George Floyd narrated his own death. And that mm-hmm. struck a chord with all Americans. And welcome to my world. This shit goes on all the time. And now finally, you're being able to see it in real time and it touches a nerve of America. But regrettably, man, I say there's an 18 month pendulum because some cop is going to get shot somewhere and the public opinion is going to go back the other way. And you see it creeping back now ever so slowly with a rash of murders going up around the country and, you know, um, these flash mob robberies that are endemic in California and elsewhere now. So it is the natural pendulum swing. And regrettably, it's going to take another visible sort of event to rally the troops again, even in the face of Ahmaud Arbery's um, guilty verdicts, even in the face of that, it's going to still take more. Don't you think that we learned the wrong lessons from all of these things? Like initially people are well-intentioned and they're sort of shocked by the horror of the brutality or whatever. But then just like you talk about that pendulum, a lot of people, what they take from this is that, oh, well, the police need to crack down. I mean, the one thing that we need to remind people is that a lot of people looked at what happened to Rodney King and they were like, what's the problem? You know, that people are like, this is the way that, maintain, that you maintain law and order in this country. And sometimes, you know, 
you immediately. He was a he was an ex-con. He was driving fast. He was drunk. Like that's what happens when you do that. You know, there are a lot of people that think that 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 is the way that you police. So don't you think that some people just take the wrong lessons from all this stuff anyway? Like that that it's that pendulum never even goes all the way in the other direction. Yes, and that it's very very fleeting. When you had all of the protests of 2020, there still has not been any significant reform nationwide. Not even in California. I mean, you know, what's supposed to be the, the, the liberal bastion, we failed mightily in California in getting a substantive police reform bill, even in the era of George Floyd, which still reflects how much there is still work to be done because it's a continuing fight, man. Well, policing is is not an occupation. It's an ideal, mm-hmm. right? Because there's no other occupation in the country that I can think of, maybe even medicine. If you got a bad doctor, people call him a quack and they sue you for malpractice. But policing, they're all heroes. The the, the 9-11ing of police is something you want to talk about a pendulum. That hero narrative from 2001, even with George Floyd and the rest of it, people haven't recovered from. And I think what's been really interesting about it is, is you're also talking about even if you're not talking about policing, you're talking about black and white. You're really talking about black and white violence. That's really what we're talking about. And it's interesting to me how often that concept gets lumped into policing. George Zimmerman wasn't a cop. People treated him like he was a cop. The kids, the guys who killed Emmett Aubrey, they weren't police officers, right? I mean, so the, the guys who killed Jordan Davis, the guy who killed him at the gas station for having his music up too loud, he wasn't a cop. And yet, People treat even vigilante violence. Kyle Rittenhouse wasn't a cop, but they treat white violence on victims, even though Kyle Rittenhouse's uh, victims weren't black. This idea of who is going to be the aggressor gives you a cop-like mentality, and people seem to feel like that's okay. It's the fear of the black male. I mean, and I don't mm-hmm. do woe as me, okay? But it's the it it and it and it's coded talking about you know the suburbs and and the crime going to the suburbs and that is code for black violence and there is an acceptability of policing hard policing because they are the last line of defense between the suburbs and anarchy from you know the jungles right. of the inner city and that yeah, narrative right. is what continues to resonate. I learned at recently, Jan, at a seminar that people will believe a lie if it is repeated often enough. No, that's, that's a psychological concept. They'll believe a lie. And if it's big enough, that's the keep that's, repeating that's, it. You know, from, that's from World War Two. Exactly. Fake news. Fake news. The election was stolen. It was stolen. It was stolen. When 70 percent of Republicans believe that, that really speaks ill of our nation and where we're going, where we have to, to, to go in the future to get real justice. Yeah, it's really interesting to me as well that when you're talking about learning the right or wrong lessons, let's not forget that the minute the Rodney King video came out, there was some outrage. There was a lot of outrage. But there was also a lot of people saying, well, what happened before the video? (laughs) There were people who were completely willing to say this. There has to be a reason that this happened. Well, how you know, I and and this is going to be me. I was a 
a teenager and I have like these two currents, like my parents both grew up in the Jim Crow South, you know, 1950s, 60s, Arkansas. And they told me things about police, but they didn't sort of connect it all together. But, you know, I knew fundamentally, like, you don't actually want to have to interact with the police if you don't have to. But then you watch this video and you spend a whole life watching like TV shows that like L.A. Law, you know, just whatever, all these shows that sort of glorify cops. And I'm 13 years old and I'm like, well, why would the cops bother somebody like for no reason? Mm-hmm. You know, like even even like somebody growing up in the house that I grew up in and a lot of people grew up in, you still it still takes a while to understand it. Oh, no, sometimes the cops just, you know, <laughs> are sometimes not actually defending law. Right. Yeah. Sometimes they just mess you for no reason. Right. And not no reason, a specific reason. Well, a but, specific reason. well but you guys, this is interesting to me because no matter what happens, the details in the courtroom, like what you're articulating when you're talking about the threat of a black man, you're talking about the difference between how America views Trayvon Martin in a hoodie versus Rittenhouse with a with a gun. Like, just look at them at the starting point and just how the reaction to both of them. Trayvon Martin with a hoodie going through a neighborhood is more threatening than Rittenhouse walking through your neighborhood. Dan, white people aren't afraid of other white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not. A, if you saw a white dude with a gun, would you be afraid of him? I'd be afraid of him because he has a gun. There are people like when you look at the look at the difference like even if you look at something like January 6th, right? There was still a feeling that there was no danger here. Right. That these that these guys were letting off steam or that they were upset or that they were storming, but you weren't your life wasn't in danger. If that was a bunch of black people storming the Capitol, fire logs, you would have felt bodies your life was on in the danger. steps, fire logs, well, bodies exactly. on they the steps. They would have opened right. fire because you would have felt that your life was in danger. Right. And to one point, Carl, that you made earlier about the about Rittenhouse and about the um, about the verdict, I think people always have to remember that there are two things at work here. Right. When you're dealing with the with the justice system, one is the result. Right. What you saw versus what the result was. We saw Rodney King get beaten. Therefore, we want justice. But the second piece is your piece. What is taking place? You have to prove this. You still have to prove that what took place can be shown to a jury. And if you can't do that, and a lot of times it's like the it's like the line. It doesn't matter what happened. It's what I can prove. Carl knows that, and Carl lives that, and that's why Carl can take on the OJ case and be the star of the OJ documentary because he's just giving you cold truths because he's got four decades of experience before that case of I'm just going to go in and and I am going to argue the facts on behalf of my client. But can you take us back, Carl, to something that, Joel, no matter how comprehensive, no matter how thorough, can't really know which is what did that area of los angeles feel like at the time before rodney king during rodney king you're talking about smelling the smoke where you smelled it Mm -hmm. but uh this is america coming to the discussion because there's a video what was going on in los angeles at the time that made that boil to the point where it boiled it was the verdict of a white jury in simi valley which was 60 miles from where it happened. And they, by their verdict, rejected the humanity of Rodney King. And everyone could see the humanity by the striking of the billy clubs. And when the jury said not guilty, in essence, they said Rodney King's life does not matter. And because every black person could empathize with his predicament of being subjected to the law enforcement, that 
went visceral. I don't I don't burn, but I understand it. Okay. Right. You know, well, it wasn't know, law enforcement. I understand it, it yeah. because mm -hmm. it offended me as a black man that these white people did not recognize the humanity of the circumstance and give it credibility. And right. and it hit everybody. Yep. Viscerally. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. what are you going to say? Right. What can you say after after this? And I think that, I mean, to me, what always what always hits me the hardest whenever I think about that period is the number of people who go out of their way to try and make sense of what they saw in that video. Yeah. I mean, the idea of proportionality that you're not even talking about law enforcement by that point. But to be right? but to be clear, we didn't riot over the act happening. That's what I'm saying. Okay. It was the injustice. It was we the, rioted over the verdict. Over the verdict. And the mm -hmm. and, 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 and and the implications of the message that the verdict sent that your life doesn't matter. And we said, Okay, damn it. We'll show you. <laughs> we'll show you what it but okay. Okay. You know, forget it. Let's do it. And I get it. You, you say you don't burn, but you understand. Absolutely. Well, I mean, when you're when you're watching Reginald Denny, you feel it right there. Right. You watch that video of what happened to that man. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Right. I don't care. What, I mean, that that video is probably I don't even know if probably it is as heartbreaking and as shocking as the Rodney King video. And, it we, was like and, this, we, re and we represented Reginald Denny as well. I didn't know that. And mm, Reginald Denny that. got millions of dollars before GoFundMe from average Americans to help finance his recovery mm -hmm. because America could connect with Reginald Denny. Gentlemen, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the discourse. Joel, what do you want? Oh, we need another hour. What you want to what do you want to tell people, Joel? <laughs> so they can if they want another hour of something that feels like this, uh, sell what it is that you're doing and why yes. it is that people should be listening to it. Uh, yes, yeah, so Slow Burn Six, it's on uh, you know, produced by Slate.com, the website I work at. You can find the podcast on anywhere you listen to podcasts. So Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, any of that good stuff. E episode comes out every Wednesday. So we got four more episodes coming out through the end of the year. And then if you buy your Slate Plus subscription, uh, $1 uh, for the first month, you can hear like some of the extra interviews we do um, and some of the process behind every episode. And, you know, look, man, I, I don't try to big up things, but this is the most important work I've ever done in my life. I'm 43 years old. I've been in journalism, you know, 20 some odd years, done a lot of different stuff. But I do think this is the most important work I've ever done. And I think that people will really find something in it that will say that will speak to this particular moment in America, too. And it's outstanding. It's good stuff. Uh, thank you for making the work. And gentlemen, thank you for your time here in sharing the discussion. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you, Dan. A lot has changed over the years. But you know one thing that hasn't? The great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, 
a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.